delights to reveal. He's a God of, he's a God of mercy, forgiving sins and iniquity, but there's only one way that that mercy comes to us. It's by the blood of Christ. And our text this morning is Genesis 50. I'll be reading and particularly applying verses 15 through 21. Um, looking at that text, but I'm also going to be making reference to Psalm 130. So if you have your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Psalm 130, I'm going to read that as well. Hear the Word of God. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's come before the Lord and ask his blessing upon his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is sufficient for us to bring us to faith and to build us up in that faith. We thank you that your word is powerfully at work in those who believe. We thank you that you continue to speak to us through it, and we pray that you would open up our hearts, that we would be ready to hear it and that your word would be faithful as it goes forth, and that it would be powerful among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned, I've been preaching through the book of Genesis, and we've been seeing actually how much Joseph, the person of Joseph, is a type of Christ. And if you look at the book of Genesis as a whole, I would argue that Joseph is the preeminent type of Christ in his life. We think of Isaac as the one who's like Christ because he was the sacrifice. You remember that Abraham offered up his son, and it was a picture of God offering up his son, and Isaac is certainly a type of Christ. But Joseph, in his whole life, is a type of Christ. And we see that the last, um, really the, the last 13 chapters of the book of Genesis, with the exception of Genesis 38, which was a chapter of Judah and his sin, uh, great sin um, there, uh, but, but chapters 37 is when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, his own brothers. They sold him into slavery. And we, we see in the picture of Joseph's life that he is a type of Christ. Here's the, here's the, the prophet who is mistreated by his own. And, and then through his humiliation and then in his exaltation, he's risen. And at the right hand, he becomes a savior, as it were, to the world. as He brings food and bread to the world, it says in, in Genesis. And, and even in his exaltation, he is sanctifying his brothers as God uses him in that way. We, we saw that in, in many ways. And so we're coming to the end of Genesis, and we see now that um, after the death of Jacob, we see how the brothers of Joseph have this, this lingering doubt, this lingering guilt and doubt regarding the mercy of Joseph, Joseph and his willingness to forgive them. And that's what I want to focus on this morning as we look at verses um, uh, as we look at verses 15 through 21 of Genesis 50. And this, this, this guilt, this lingering, this feeling of, of guilt and, and doubts whether there can be forgiveness. We just sang about that, but it's, it's, a, it's a problem that we all can understand and relate to because we're sinners and we've been sinned against as well. 
And we live in a sinful world. And this is a great, guilt is a great problem in this world. We're all sinners and we're sinned against as well. And we feel guilty at times because we are guilty. And we need to know the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God and and learn to rest in that mercy. But not everyone understands this. I I remember years ago uh, in Connecticut when our our children were taught uh, music by a, a Russian piano teacher. She was a Russian Jew. She wasn't a practicing Jew. Um, she was a wonderful uh, music teacher. She loved our kids. We witnessed to her uh, the gospel, but she, she really believed that guilt was good for her because it made her a better person, you see. Of course, she didn't understand really what it was like to be a sinner before a holy God. That wasn't really brought home to her by the Holy Spirit yet. Um, but guilt does not make us better. We need to know forgiveness. We need to experience God's forgiveness and rest in His forgiveness in order to be and to do what God wants us to be and to do as His people. There are many people, maybe some here this morning, that serve God out of, not, not with joy, but with some kind of maybe slavish fear. There's nagging guilt that they're really not forgiven. And that's not helpful at all. It doesn't strengthen us at all. Um, many people in this world are racked with guilt, and, the, and that's a source of many mental problems and neuroses, but that's not just the problem with Unbelievers, there are many professing Christians who struggle with unresolved guilt feelings and don't understand what the psalmist says in Psalm 130 when he says that there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And so the message this morning, the title is The Solution to Great Guilt, and we're looking at verses 15 through 21 of Exodus, or Genesis 50 with these three points. You can write them down if you want. The three points. First, the problem of guilt in the brothers of Joseph, and we see it here. And secondly, the answer to guilt and the mercy of God in Christ, as we see it in Joseph, who is himself a type of Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to make application specifically to us um, today. So I want to begin just by looking at the brothers of Joseph. We notice they come to to Joseph here, and they're holding on to these guilt feelings. They know that they're guilty. What do they do? They sold him into slavery Um, 17 years before and, and they're, they're still guilty in regard to the way they treated Joseph. And they hold on to this guilt, even after Joseph had encouraged them. If you go back to Genesis 45, when Joseph first revealed himself to his brothers, this is what he said. He said, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And then in, in verse 7 of Genesis 45, he goes on and he says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And at that time, uh, Joseph encouraged them and he promised to provide for them. But, but now they doubt Joseph's forgiveness and they're, they're fearful of his retaliation. And, and, and why? Well, uh, they have these lingering ga- guilt. And perhaps they think, you know, if, if I were Joseph, I'd seek retaliation. They think that Joseph is like so many others, and it's, natural, it's a natural tendency in people to want revenge. But why are they fearful now? I think they, they recognize, okay, Jacob is dead, and they think that Jacob's presence has been restraining Joseph. And maybe Joseph was holding his peace while his father was alive, but now that his father is dead, he's going to seek revenge, and he has the power to do it, and they are vulnerable to him. But I think there's something else at work as well that we need to always be mindful of the spiritual realities 
that are around us, that there's another one who's involved here who is always at work with guilty fears, and that is the devil. He works with our guilty fears. He's a tempter, but after he tempts us and we fall, he is also an accuser, and he works always with guilty fears. And so we see the brothers, they, they send this message to Joseph in verses 16 and 17. So they send a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. And say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now the question, I, as I read that text and I wonder, maybe you asked that same question, did, did Jacob really say that? You know, I don't think he did, and here's why. I, I think it's, it's certainly not recorded for us that he did, but I think that Jacob would have certainly told that to Joseph himself if that was on his heart in his deathbed. Um, but look at the way that the narrator, look at the way Moses states this. It's, it's, it's because of their fears that they contrive this, not because they're carrying out their father's last wishes. And so for that reason, I think the story is fabricated. They come that way. But look what they do. They come to Joseph with this, and then they bow to him, and they say, we are your servants, and they fear him. But they fear him with slavish, guilty fear. And They are, in fact, Joseph's brothers, but they do not think that they're worthy to be, and they will be his servants. You read through the scriptures and doesn't it remind you of another story? Jesus told the story of a prodigal son who took his father's wealth and he spent it all in lavish living and he went off in his ways and then he came to his senses and he realized that his father was good. He was starving and he wanted to go back home to his father but he knew he wasn't worthy to be his son and so he set out, this is what I'll do. I will arise and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he planned to go back to his father and and to do this. He knew that he was not worthy to be his son, yet he knew his father was good, and so he's going to say this to his father. And why does he want to say this? Why does he plan this? Well, I think it's because he, he couldn't see the glory of the father's mercy, at least not yet. And he couldn't believe that things could ever be the way that they once were, not after what he had done. And of course, you remember the father's response. And that's a picture of our Heavenly Father. What did he do? Did he say, yeah, you can be a slave. My no, he went over, hugged him and kissed him and killed the fatted calf from him. He said, my son was dead and he's alive. Mercy of our God. But you know, there's something of this guilt, this reserve that's here in the brothers of Joseph. And it's a great problem, great guilt. But we see the great mercy of God in Christ in this text as well. And we see it really in Joseph's response. We've, we've already seen how Joseph is a type of Christ in his life and uh, his work, but not only is he a type of Christ in his, in his role here, but we see something of the Spirit of Christ in him, in, in, in Joseph. And what is Joseph's initial response when they come to him? Do you see in the text, as they come and say, please, your father said, please forgive us, what does he do? It says, he wept. Why did he weep? I don't believe it was because Joseph was remembering the struggles and the sorrows of his own life as he looked back, oh, you bring up these things and he weeps for himself. I don't think it was tears at all for himself. He, he's compassion for his brothers. He's sorry that they've had to wrestle with this guilt for so long. He thinks about what they must be going through and he has empathy for them. 
He's not vindictive at all. He cares for them. And Joseph harbors no grudge against them after all that they had done for him, to him. And I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, how is that possible? There's only one way that that's possible. You see, it's the Spirit of Christ in Joseph. And Joseph also shows true humility here. I think humility is one of those things that we lose sight of what real humility is. Humility isn't the person who points to himself and says, look at how humble I am, or, or a person who has a bad self-image or something like that. No, humility, true humility really is seeing the truth from God's perspective. What does Joseph say in verse 19? Am I in the place of God? You see, brothers and sisters, remember, sin is ultimately against God. That's why David in Psalm 51, in that great psalm of repentance, when David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba, and he had Uriah put to death basically by taking the army away and exposing him to cover himself, he sinned against Uriah greatly. He sinned with Bathsheba. But in that psalm of repentance, he says in Psalm 51, it's against you, Lord, and you only that I have sinned. And he's not making light of his sin. He's actually bringing out the sinfulness of it. Because that's where sin is. Sin is against God. And of course, it's not to say that you know, we sin against one another and we need to confess to one another our sin and ask for forgiveness of one another. But, but sin, all sin, is ultimately against God. God is the true forgiver of sin. And if God forgives, who can condemn? That's the power of Paul's statement in Romans 8, verses 33, when he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And it's here in this context that Joseph looks at the big picture and he sees, he sees it all from God's perspective. Think about it. Joseph submits himself to God's plan. He sees God's purposes coming out of all of this and he reminds the brothers here of what he had said back in chapter 45. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph acknowledges their guilt. Yes, you are guilty. You, 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 did, you meant it for evil, but he sees God's purposes in all this, and he, and he rests in God's great plan. The other thing is that Joseph here, you notice, isn't the center of his universe. That's part of the problem with sinners, isn't it? That, that we're so self-centered. And when we get angry, it's often that self-centered pride that is behind it. How dare you do that to me? When that unsafe driver cuts you off and you think, how, how dare you do that to me? Or when we're sinned against greatly. Maybe some of you have been sinned against greatly. And, and it's natural to hold a grudge. You did that to me. You sinned against me. But Joseph is a humble man here because he sees things from God's perspective. He's willing, he's willing to even be sinned against in order for God's plan to be worked out, and he holds no grudge here. And in this, brothers and sisters, he resembles Christ. 
There's something of the spirit of Christ in this. Jesus came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he was worthy. Jesus is the one who was worthy of all service, of everyone bowing to him and and serving him and doing his will and to be pampered and adored by all the world. But that was not his experience in this world. He was sinned against and sinned against greatly. And yet we hear him even from the cross as he prayed, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Far from holding a grudge, Jesus interceded for those who so mistreated him. And Jesus came in meekness to be a suffering servant to save his people from their sins. And Jesus' prayer from the cross was answered in the case of the elect. There are many that were there at the cross, I believe, that were there on the day of Pentecost that were cut to the heart. Jesus came to do the will of the Father and he was sinned against greatly, but it was the will of the Father for that to happen for God's good purpose. Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Peter on the day of Pentecost, when he preached that sermon about about what was happening at that time and Jesus had been raised from the dead and, and Peter's message to the people was this. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2, 23 and 24. And you see right here in our text, Joseph is saying something very similar to that to the brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And there's no grudge. No desire in Joseph for retaliation. Why? Because he's willing. He willingly submits to the Father's will in all of this. And he reminds the brothers. He reminds the brothers and reassures them that nothing has changed. His heart hasn't changed. His determination hasn't changed regarding them. He will take care of them. Look at verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Friends, Joseph here is a prophet, a priest, and a king. In his life, he points us ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, we see the mercy of God in Christ. And so friends, what, what application should we make regarding this text? How, how is this a lesson for our faith here? Well, we see the solution to great guilt here, don't we? we? We see something of the glory also of our Savior and the great mercy of God in Christ. See, the truth is that guilt doesn't make us better people. We need to know forgiveness, and there are many professing Christians who hold on to guilt feelings and live by them. Rather than accepting the free forgiveness of God in Christ. And, and, and they have a slavish kind of fear. There's no joy in that. Where Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. They're not, they're not experiencing that. Maybe there's some here this morning. You're, you you, you, you want to serve the Lord, but you have this guilty fear. And you do things because you know that you ought to. Or maybe because out of guilt. But you're not, there's no joy in that service. You need to know the forgiveness of your sins. I know that there's another problem, certainly, in the Christian church today and in the world today, that problem of easy believism that thinks lightly of sin, that thinks lightly of repentance. And that's a great problem, too. But there's also this problem of holding on to guilt, even after confessing it and repenting of it, which is really a form of unbelief and pride. I remember R.C. Sproul telling a story of a woman who came to him with a complaint, and her complaint was that the Lord wasn't answering her prayer. 
She said, I've asked the Lord to forgive me of the sin that I committed many times, but he does not answer my prayer. And R.C. said to her, well, I want you to do something. I want you to go back and ask the Lord to forgive you for your sin one more time. And she was exasperated. What do you mean? I've done it 15 times. He says, no, go this time and ask him one more time to ask you to forgive you for the sin of arrogance. And she said, what are you talking about? Uh, he says, your arrogance in living by your feelings and not believing the promise of God. Because God says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And friends, we need to believe what God says. That's what faith does. To hold on to guilt feelings after confessing it before God then is unbelief in his promise. And so the first thing we see here as we look at this text is that we need to confess our sins, we need to repent of them, but then we need to believe his promise. And the answer to great guilt is faith in the mercy and the forgiveness of God and trusting in the promise of his word. That that, that these uh, brothers continued to wallow in their guilt and they thought that Joseph surely would also, but we need to to embrace the mercy of God and the trust and the promise of of his word. And that's why I look at Psalm 130, and that psalm is a wonderful psalm in this context. The, the psalmist in Psalm 130 is in the depths, and we don't understand why. We don't know. He didn't tell us. A lot of the psalms, the context are left um, for us to guess because they apply in so many different ways to our lives. But in the psalmist in Psalm 130 uh, we don't know what he's in the depths for, but it surely has something to do with his guilt and his sin. He's not sensing the forgiveness of God, and surely that's a problem. Uh, sometimes God gives us wonderful, a wonderful sense of his forgiveness by his Holy Spirit, but not always. And here the psalmist in Psalm 130 doesn't sense that forgiveness, and so what does he do? He remembers The mercy of God. He says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isn't that an interesting verse? Not feared with slavish fear, but feared with the childlike reverence and love that's appropriate for a believer. There's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And then what does he do then? He waits for God and he hopes in his word. Look at verse 5. If you're looking at Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits And in his word, I hope. And surely it's God's word of promise that he hopes in. There's forgiveness with him. And one day, he says, that forgiveness will be made clear. And and friends, I want to tell you this morning that that forgiveness has been made clear. It is found in the satisfaction that Jesus made at the cross. And now God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3, 26. And Paul goes on in that epistle in Romans 5, in verse 1, he says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's not a subjective peace. That's an objective peace purchased by Christ as he satisfied divine justice on behalf of sinners that come to him. And to doubt God's word then, when he has provided a sacrifice for sins, is the doubt, is the sin of pride and unbelief. People don't realize that. As they wallow and I'm just, um, I just don't feel, I, I know I'm unworthy. That's pride. Rather than trusting in the word of God, we think something more is needed. There must be something that I need to do, and that belittles the work of Christ. But the devil is also involved in this. Don't, don't forget that. He's the accuser of the brethren, and he wants you to think hard thoughts of God. That's what he does. 
That's one of the great schemes that he has. He, he gets people, God's people to dwell in their own sin and their guilt and to forget God's mercy. But the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. That's one of the effects of Jesus' work on the cross. We read in Revelation 12. Listen to this passage in Revelation 12, 9 and 10. That the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. He still tries to accuse, but he has no authority. He has no power. He has no authority to accuse. Jesus has satisfied divine justice. And so, friends, remember, always the mercy of God in Christ. Um, Paul says in Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who's indeed interceding for us. We need to know that. There's a confidence. There's, there's a strength that comes with understanding the forgiveness of God. That the righteous are as bold as a lion, though, though the, the wicked flee easily away. Whereas we stand in this culture, we stand in our word, and we proclaim Christ, and you have that sense of, of, of unresolved guilt that's going to cripple you in your witness. That we want to testify and say, I'm a, I'm a rotten sinner like you, but God has saved me. He has justified me. He is sanctifying me, and I, and I stand before him by grace, and you can too. And that's our witness in this world. There's a boldness that we need, but we also need to see the glory of Christ as he's revealed to us here that we might worship him as we ought. We, we see it in Joseph. See, Joseph was willing to be sinned against in order that God be glorified, but Jesus is greater than Joseph. Not only was he willing to be sinned against, he came for that very purpose, to do the will of the Father, and he was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Let me read again a few verses. From Isaiah 53, he was despised, he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We are to honor, we are to exalt in the mercy of God and Christ and his willingness. He came to do the will of the Father. It's wrong to think that somehow Jesus made the Father love you. Of course, it was the Father's love that sent him. But, but Jesus also shares that mercy, that hesed, that, that loving kindness of the Father. He holds no grudge against you even now as a believer. And, and, and we can think of many reasons why he should. None of us serves him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of us sin against him every day of our lives. But Jesus doesn't hold a grudge. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just as merciful today as he was the day that you first believed. And he knew all that you would do. All the ways that you had sinned against him and he still loved you and he still gave himself for you. So we're to glory in Christ Jesus as we see it. Even have a glimpse of that, of that spirit of Christ seen in Joseph here and relying upon his mercy and his grace and trust that, that he will continue to rule over you for your good. And he loves you still. He's ready to help us. He continues to care for us and to serve us and undeserving as we are. And he prays for us and he hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. 
And so he's your savior and your king and you're to serve him and with joy. He's the king of mercy. But finally, brothers and sisters, one other thing by way of application here. We need to learn from him. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And we need to learn from him here that we would delight in mercy too. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain uh, mercy and that we would learn to forgive others freely from the heart and not hold grudges. And I want to ask you a question this morning. How, how can you forgive when someone really sins against you greatly? And we struggle with forgiveness over small things, but suppose there's a really great sin. Someone, some of you maybe have experienced great sin from, from someone that you trusted maybe uh, someone abused you or something happened and, 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 and you hold a grudge, you, you have a hard time of, of forgiving that. How is it possible, how is it possible to forgive? Think about Joseph here. This isn't just a story, this is the man's life. His brothers conspired, his own brothers conspired against him. They wanted to kill him, but, but they sold him into slavery. And years in prison he suffered and wouldn't you feel justified in holding a grudge? How can you forgive great sin against you? And this is the only way. Only by seeing things from God's perspective and knowing the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ for yourself. And you remember that story that Jesus told the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. And he told that story in the context there for us to begin to see things from the perspective of heaven in regard to mercy. There was a man who owed 10,000 talents to a great king and he couldn't pay it. There's no way. A talent was like a year's wages and he had 10,000 years of wages. He's never going to pay it off. He's, oh, be merciful me. I'll pay it off. And the, and, the, and the king had pity upon him, had mercy upon him, forgave him his sins. Then he went off and found a servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that's a lot of money. A denarii is a day's wage. A hundred days' wage he owed him. And he said, pay me what you owe. I'll be, mer- I'll be merciful. I'll pay. No. And he threw him in debtor's prison. And Jesus told that story. He says, so will my father do to you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. How do we forgive grace? And we must, we must see it from God's perspective as Joseph did. We must see what God's purpose is in all of this. That God has a plan. You meant it for evil, but he meant it for good. And we need to experience the mercy of God for ourselves. I've been forgiven. And that's, you see, the basis, certainly, of Paul's exhortation to the church. In Colossians 3, for example, he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's not an option. He goes on and says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. I love that verse in Colossians 3, 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's what we call a corporate exhortation. He's not speaking to one individual. He's speaking to a body of people and he's saying, y'all, and from the south, as they talk that way, you know, y'all, y'all, let the peace of Christ rule in all y'all's hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful, the peace of Christ. Remember what James tells us. In James chapter 2, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What is that law of liberty? Well, it's not something other than the moral law of God, but it's the moral law of God with the curse removed and the Holy Spirit given to us. 
the law of liberty because it's the law in Christ Jesus. Speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, and praise God that it does because he is a God of mercy, and he has chosen to be gracious, and he has a plan for his glory and for our good, and he does it all to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And so may God enable us to glory in his mercy in Christ, to rest in that mercy for ourselves and to show it to one another and to others. And may God be glorified in his church. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the mercy that we see, your mercy that is revealed through Joseph in this passage. We we know the problem of guilt. We know it all too well because we ourselves are guilty sinners before you, but we thank you for the mercy that you have shown us that has been displayed to us in the person of your son. And we know that that was your plan. That all the things that we look back on our life, we can look back with remorse. We can look back with self-pity. We can look back with, um, with penance. But you have taught us in your word that we're to give all that up. There is no penance to be done. Jesus paid it all. What there is is simply an, an embracing of your free grace and then a learning to be grateful, and a learning to live a new life. And we thank you that Jesus enables us to do that because he is a merciful Savior. He said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And may we learn that. May we show that to one another. And may we show that to the watching world that you might be exalted and glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.